This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. As always, Paul, Paul, you had a birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. I'm very excited to be with you today. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to be here, too. What a great way to celebrate. It was, I was telling you earlier, it was a nice, misty, rainy day, which made me pretty happy. So that was my... My early birthday present. <laughs> your your happiest birthdays, the the gloom and the dour uh, October weather. Nice. Well, exactly. we have books for you today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are so excited. Thanks for jumping in there, Damien. So we are here today with uh, uh, translator Damien Searles. Uh, Damien, I don't want to reduce you to translator. Um, I've always enjoyed interacting with you when we have had a chance in the past through emails and various things. You may not even remember any of them because I think you probably interact with a lot of people, but you've always been so friendly. And of course, I just love whenever I see that you have a a translation of some book coming out. Mm. I'm excited to pick it up. I've been a I've been a fan for a while. And I'm sure that probably is a little weird. Maybe. I don't know. But (laughs) We're just delighted to have you it's on. It's not the show too weird. Today. Don't worry about it. Don't <laughs> mind. The translator fanboys. <laughs> well, and we are here today specifically to talk with Damien um, about Yoon Fossin. I don't think I said that even even I, I tried to no, emphasize no, pieces no. and uh, but uh, but Yoon it's it's if some people might not know who we're talking about you've probably seen the name and it looks more like John Foss or something like that but recent uh, Nobel laureate Yoon Fossa very recent um, uh, I often get asked if it's pronounced like Bob Fossey. And at this point, I do the little jazz hands. But um, no, it's not Fosse, it's Fosse. And you, you nailed it. Well, I, I appreciate it. Move to Norway. I will say it different every time I try to say uh, <laughs> Mr. Fosse's name. But we're, we're just so excited that uh, we have this opportunity to sit down with you, uh, Damien, because, again, as fans of your work, I, I, I want people to know um, who you are. I imagine many of our listens, listeners do. Um, know you as a translator, uh, but you're also an author of books in your own right. I know you had a, a book of, of stories come out. Um, you you were the author of a biography a few years ago that was published on Herman Rorschach called The Ink Blots, uh, which um, got a lot of attention. I, I, I didn't know that until I was looking, um, so I apologize. I have not read it, but I am very interested in it. And it was an NPR book of the year, probably other things like that too. Well, it uh, also came out the month um, of the presidential inauguration in 2017. So uh, many people had other things on their mind. Um, <laughs> in, and so that's part of it. But um, uh, yeah, you know, there had never been a biography of him. And like, no, everyone knows what a Rorschach test is and reads, you know, newspaper cliches about it being like the sports decision or the Supreme Court decisions, a Rorschach test or Obama's a Rorschach test or whatever. But like Rorschach, person, place or thing, like nobody knows. And um, it turns out he's a great guy. It's a fascinating story. And it's kind of a split in half biography with the first half being him, but he dies very young right after publishing the Rorschach test. And so the second half is kind of a biography of the sorcerer's apprentice career of this test spreading out into the world and being used for all sorts of crazy things that he did not have in mind. 
And, you know, it's still used today in a reasonable, responsible way, kind of like what he created, not like the film noir thing of like, (laughs) oh, I see the kitchen drawer where I hid the knife that I used to murder my mom. Like, you know, that's (laughs) not how the Rorschach test works, but it actually does work. And, And he's an interesting guy, too. Um, and it's it's kind of about translation because it's about how when you see things, yes, you're the one seeing it and it's your perspective, but your mind works in a certain way. And so you're going to see it in a certain way. The Rorschach test is really not about what you see in the pictures, but it's about how you process the pictures. And same with translation. You know, when a translator is reading a book in order to translate it, it's not purely mechanical because they're the ones reading it, but nor is it just subjective because they're reading it like it's there. And what's there is what it is that they're reading. So the whole kind of interesting dynamic of it not being really subjective or really objective turns out to be kind of the same as translation, although I didn't realize that going into the project. (laughs) That wasn't what what made you want to write it in the first place then. Yeah, I mean, they look cool, right? And like, oh my God, (laughs) do they work? You know, they do. So that was what made me want to write it. Oh, that's excellent. Um, Now, I did want to list just a few of your translation projects. You have many, and you translate from many languages. So this is not an exhaustive, you know, a list of everything. Um, but of course we're here because you are the translator of a lot of works by Yoon Fossa. And I'm excited to talk to you about those. Uh, we have a new one coming out later on this month from Transit Books here in the U.S. called A Shining, uh, which I have read. I read that several months ago. It's very short, listeners. It might be a good way to get into his work because I found it mysterious from page one and captivating. We'll talk a little bit more about it, but I, I loved, I loved a shining. I just loved it. Oh, thanks. You know, I mean, the original pub date was Halloween, which was pretty good for it because it's a spooky <laughs> little. Um, it it isn't even quite a novella. I kind of think of it as a tale, like mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe or something. Um, but um, there was big news last week so the <laughs> publisher is trying to get it into people's hands before the 31st we'll see how that works. it's not in my hands yet so if if we do a reading from it today you're gonna have to read it all uh, right I'll, I'll, i will try uh, you you'll i hope you guys are smiling at the end of my reading um you know have a good time with it but i i thought it might be nice later on to read just the first little bit so i'll do that here in a bit um but beyond uh you and fossa uh you, you a lot, we Paul and I have talked a lot about your translation of Uwe, Uwe <laughs> Janssen's Anniversaries. Massive work. I remember, I think it was back in 2013 or something, where Nick During from NYRB Classics uh, mentioned to me that you were working on that. And I was so excited. I remember when the box came, um, just a massive work and one of my favorite things I've read in ever. Um, so... That's from yeah, the German. You know, I, mean, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't manage people's expectations of it too well. I kind of come right out and say, "We're talking Tolstoy, Proust, Dante, like that level of mm. work." So, um, you know, probably not the best pitch. On the other hand, <laughs> 
when people read it, they kind of agree. So, you know, maybe it's not such a bad pitch after all. Wow. Uh, I, I loved it. So there, so uh, we, we're talking about your translation from the Norwegian. There's uh, from the German. You also translate um, one of my, well, two of my favorite Patrick Modiano books, another Nobel laureate from, from French. I loved Sundays in August. Yeah, it's, it's loved, cool, right? Loved, loved it's, it. um, it's, if you're used to, I mean, Modiano's um, kind of thing is that he writes the same book over and over again. That's what everyone says about it, and that's what he says about it. And there are a couple exceptions, like Dora Bruder is the more sort of serious, non-fiction-y, more like Zabald's kind of Holocaust work. Um, so it stands out a bit from the sort of atmospheric Paris novels. But um, otherwise, like they really are kind of the same, which is one of the things that's great about him. But Sundays in August is the outlier because it's Nice instead of Paris. So instead of the like misty, mysterious streets of the Arnaud you get the like Riviera out of season, kind of empty, covered in shadows of palm trees kind of thing. And it's a it's a different atmosphere. But it's also really well constructed as like a, a mystery in a way that some of the other ones in Paris aren't. The Paris ones tend to be more about the atmosphere, the environment, and like memories. And of course, there's that in Sundays in August. But I think you do get more. I mean, there's like a stolen diamond and mistaken identity and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, earlier this year, so I, I tried to see what, what you've published most recently. I, I have a copy of your publication from uh, LiveWrite of uh, some Thomas Thomas Mann. Um, yeah, so the last, three, oh, the last three I did are um, Bambi. Bambi. Mm-hmm. Uh, new Selected Stories by Thomas Mann, which is really designed to kind of introduce him to Americans who are intimidated by him and emphasize that he's actually really funny and heartbreaking and approachable. And it's not all magic mountain, death in Venice, Dr. Faustus. Although the publisher was like, well, you have to include death in Venice. You can't, (laughs) So, uh, but even death in Venice, it turns out was written as half of like a two part or a, a diptych of two stories with, Death in Venice being the tragic one and this other story being the comic one. Um, and so the comic one is in the anthology too. And when you look at them next to each other, um, also in terms of my, my style of translation to like get it as kind of fresh and fully English sounding as possible. Um, I think even Death in Venice has a kind of, um, airiness or breathing room. I wouldn't quite say lightness, but I mean, there's some humor and you can sort of read it a bit more easily than perhaps your experience was if you've read Death in Venice before. So um, anyway, Bambi, Death in Venice, and then a book called uh, My Men by Victoria Chellen, which is about a real life woman who was the first American female serial killer. Um, and it's also this like super intense Faulkner style writing about like a 17 year old girl 
who's really into her first sexual experiences and has major boundary issues. So, you know, those three are pretty different. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the fun part of my job, even though I have in a, in a certain sense, a kind of narrow uh, area of expertise, sort of Western European, um, like modern classics, I'd say some like modernist canonical ones and some newer ones, but in the sort of, you know, classics of literature kind of zone, there is quite a lot of variety in there if you try. Well, you're, you, you have a, a bunch. I mean, we've been talking about just the various languages. Um, the first thing I remember reading from you that I remarked on, wow, this, this is so beautifully written um, and, and recognizing that it was yours and then starting to seek out your work. Uh, because it just felt so, I don't know, it just struck, you know, so, I think there are a lot of excellent, uh, talented translators, um, and many of them can do this. But again, it's always remarkable when something just is able to get through with the language to to hit me in the soul. And it was Amsterdam Stories by Nessio, uh, published by NYRB Classics like a decade or well, more than a decade ago now. And that's from the Dutch. So I would say you you... you I'm always, you know, excited to see what you're coming out with because there's a, there is a lot of variety for a reader like me, you know. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks. Yeah, um, Neskio is sort of the um, almost the like Salinger of Dutch literature. Like everyone reads it in high school, and like it's everyone's favorite book that they remember. So it's sort of in that like Catcher in the Rye, Great Gatsby kind of zone. Um, Historically, he's early 20th century, and he's doing something kind of like what Mark Twain did in America, which is introducing a lot of like vernacular energy, sweeping away kind of fussy Victorian roundabout writing. Not that it was Victorian in the Netherlands, but it was 19th century. And um, he uses sort of Amsterdam Amsterdamish and contractions and stuff like that. So he was someone who was always thought by Dutch people to be untranslatable because the more regionally grounded it is, the more the people in the region think, well, this can't be transported anywhere else. But as most of the time with dialect, you just have to ask yourself, like, what is the dialect doing for the author? And in this case, my answer was it's giving it this fresh, you know, spoken human energy. And then you just have to get that some other way. You can't like copy Amsterdam dialect or replace it with like Brooklyn or Scotland or Texas or something like that just makes no sense because these characters are hanging around Amsterdam. So like they shouldn't speak like, you know, a cowboy or something. But um But even if you don't get the dialect, um, you can still get whatever it is the author is using the dialect to do, you know? Um, And in a way that's kind of a representative issue for translation. You know, I'm not Dutch, nor was I alive in 1905, and I can read the book and I can love the book and I can get stuff out of it. So 
sort of by definition, you don't have to be Dutch and around in 1905 to get the book. That's how literature works. It kind of goes beyond its um, its birthplace and um, and its moment and speaks to people anywhere. So if it speaks to me, it can speak to you because, you know, I'm no more a Dutch person than you are. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, I've, I remember reading your, you, you also often write introductions and, you know, things about your work. I, I loved your, that was the first thing I read when I got your Thomas Mann um, uh, volume that just came out was okay. Cause it, it, you have such a great way of explaining the artistry behind it, but there's a, there's an excitement and a, and kind of a, I don't know, an, an enthusiasm about your work that you convey so well in that, that shows why you give this stuff attention and why you're bringing it to us. And I, I've always really appreciated that. Thanks. I mean, that's, that's the main thing that I uh, sort of get as feedback or judge as the feedback that I'm getting for a book. Like if I really love a book and I translate it and someone who's read it in English tells me they really love the book, then like I've done my job. That's how I see what my job is. I mean, not every book I translate is one of my favorite books in the world because I'm a professional and I get asked to do things and, you know, there's different work that I have different reasons for doing, but, um, but a lot of the time I am translating stuff that I really love. And to be honest, I'm just one of those people who once I'm doing it, I kind of fall in love with it more like back in school too. You know, when I had to write a paper in college on something, like I'd usually by the end of it, like talk myself into thinking it was really great, you know, which, which isn't necessarily uh, very accurate, but is uh, conducive to, you know, trying hard because, um, you know, once I talk myself, once I can, once I talk myself into thinking it's really awesome, then I'm motivated to try and get that across. Even if I'm just totally lying to myself, it still works. <laughs> well, so I, I, we, our listeners often here at the beginning of our episode, just a short segment where we talk about what we've been reading. This might be a good time to take a quick break before we get into Yun Fosse a little bit more to ask that. And, and Paul, I'll start with you. What have you been reading recently? Sure. Yeah. So I have been doing a little reading for an upcoming publisher episode, which I'll kind of leave that discussion for, for that episode. And I'll continue to beat my drum about uh, the judging that I'm doing for the Republic of Consciousness Prize because that's well, been well. Really quick though, sure. Damien has a lot of a uh, of you know past with the publisher. Go ahead and and we'll announce who we're doing, but also you know uh, including yeah. publishing. I think one of your own books, Damien. That's what I was going to say. Okay, yeah, I'll let the cat out of the bag. So our next episode will be focused on Dalkey Archive, and in particular, it's a very thematic. Um, Book that I'm currently reading. Um, I'm reading Trilogy by Yoon Fossa. So, which is not one, one of the ones I translated, right? So, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. Just so so listeners know that. But yeah, that one is translated by great. May Britt Akerholt. 
So that's something that I am reading in preparation for that upcoming episode. But then, yeah, I'm also reading, uh, I just finished a book called Breaking and Entering by Don Gilmore, which comes out from another publisher that we all love, or at least that I know that Trevor and I love, Biblioasis. Um, And this is just another great example of a book that might have passed me by completely if it wasn't for my, um, you know, role as a judge here. And I'm just so happy that I got a chance to read it. So I'll just really quickly touch on, I'll read from the the cover copy. It says, 49 and sweating through the hottest summer on record, Beatrice Billings is rudderless. Her marriage is stale. Her son communicates solely through cryptic text messages. Her mother has dementia and she conducts endless arguments with her older sister in her head. And so this is very much, in some ways, a pretty traditional novel. You know, it's it's a midlife crisis novel, I would say, for sure. But the writing is just so well done that I found myself swept up. I won't read much. I'll just read the opening paragraph just to give people a quick taste. And the name of the opening chapter is Deadish. And it says, there was a woman in Boston who thought she was dead. B had read about it in the morning's paper. She had a rare psychiatric disorder, Cotard's delusion, where she denied her existence. Faced with overwhelming evidence to the contrary, her husband, daughter, her reflection, she remained unconvinced she was alive. Because of the current heat wave, she thought she was in hell. Her husband showed her their wedding pictures, a mortgage statement, a photo of their daughter's communion, and she just shook her head. No. And standing in the gallery, looking at Warhol's Elvis print for perhaps the 30th time, B wondered if she had a touch of cotards. The gallery was almost deserted. It was still morning, a weekday, just her and the king. And so, you know, you get a little glimpse of both the beautiful writing, but also there's some humor. But it's very much just looking in the face of, of this woman, you know, dealing with stuff that many of us have dealt with, of just you reach a certain point in your life. You know, your kids are moving on, you, you know, relationships have changed over the years. But then the, the name of the, the book is Breaking and Entering. And there's this interesting little wrinkle where one day she Googles like locksmithing or something like that. And she ends up getting kind of obsessed with this idea of, opening locks. And so she starts breaking into people's houses, some people she knows, some that she doesn't. And so that adds this interesting subplot of her kind of exploring other people's lives, maybe trying to escape her own reality a little bit. So anyway, yeah, it's again, it's something that I don't know that I would have stumbled across, but I'm so thankful that I did. And I would highly recommend it. It's a really well done novel. So yeah, that's been what I've been reading these days. I've just been enjoying hearing these updates because usually they're about books that I don't know much about that since yeah. you since you've been having this opportunity. Right. Yeah. Well, I won't give you one of those. I'm at the sort of opposite <laughs> end of the spectrum. I mean, like Paul, you know, there's the reading that I'm doing for my work, mm-hmm. but like I'm not going to count that. Um, uh, <laughs> this, this year, um, I'm a distinguished writer in residence at Wesleyan which is in Connecticut, but I'm still based um, for family reasons in Minnesota, which means I'm actually flying back and forth across the country like twice a week, which um, means that I find myself hanging around in the very good airport bookstore uh, at Hartford, Connecticut's Bradley Airport. And so I picked up a book that was that I sort of thought of as airplane reading. Um, so it is Murakami and Killing Commendatore. Um, I don't know how you guys feel. I know he has strong fans and strong detractors. I loved Wind Up Bird Chronicles and um, 
Kafka on the Shore and some of the shorter ones, though I really hated Norwegian Wood that they never finished it. Um, and I sort of kept up with him, but like I didn't get through 1Q84, the book with the long title I don't remember about Tsukiji and the colorless something, mm-hmm. something. Like I liked that one, but like I haven't read them recently. Um, and so um, Killing Commendatory is this like six or 700 page. Um, I think, you know, I liked it and I'm liking it. Um, I'm about a third to half the way through it. And um, I did, after I started, sort of look around to be like, is this one of the books everyone hates? And um, <laughs> right. It has all these, you know, glowing blurbs and stuff. So not everyone hates it, but I think the conventional wisdom, such as I saw it based on five minutes of Googling, is that it's sort of Murakami doing Murakami. Like he's sort of just retreading the same themes and sort of plot elements and stuff, but I'm really enjoying it. And um, one of the kind of funny elements of it for me is that it's a six to 700 page novel about a male painter who lives alone and most of the connections in his life have been cut off and is full of sort of reflections on human existence and the mystical nature of painting, all of which is exactly a description of subtology by Foster. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, part of what I feel like I'm reading is weirdly like psychology <laughs> light, um, but not light in a bad way. Like there's more plot and there's like sex scenes, which don't exist in septology. And um, it uh, it's very easy to read. It's well written in that sense of like, it goes down smooth and you are caught up in the story and everything like that. So um, I thought I was going to be getting a bit more away from what I usually do than I <laughs> getting. But drew, um, drew you back in. Either you guys read that one? I haven't read that one. I remember a section was published in the New Yorker and, and about the the painter and such. And I, I actually really like him in short doses. I've never read one of his novels because I'm afraid of the 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 magic I feel on the short pieces or the short segments, I'm afraid it wouldn't carry over. And it's based a lot on what people have told yeah. me. Well, but I-, I have two responses to that, though. One is, I really think Wind Up Bird Chronicle is great. I mean, it's the one I read first, and, and you often sort of like the one you read first by an author. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I really do love that one. Um, so I, I wouldn't be... Like, don't do one Q84, but like Wind Up Bird Chronicle or even Kafka on the Shore, I would like give it a shot. But the other thing is you've led in very beautifully to Septology versus A Shining, you know, because mm-hmm. Septology, for anyone who hasn't heard of it, it's called Septology because it's in seven parts, but it's actually one novel, but it was actually published as three books. Um Fossa kind of does this a lot. He's not <laughs> super into math and numbers and stuff like that. <laughs> he has Trilogy, which is one book, and he has Melancholy, which was one book, but then turned into two books, and now is combined into one book again. And um, and this Septology, which is 
Is it seven? Is it three? Is it one? Um, mm-hmm. And um, so the three books came out in 2019, 2020, and 2021, at least in the UK, a little bit later in the US. Um, but it was simultaneous in the UK with Norway and half a dozen other languages and stuff like that. And it has, I, I mean, I think that's the one that got increasingly noticed, certainly in the US and the UK. And um, the third part, so part six and seven out of the seven, or book three out of the three, was a finalist for a bunch of prizes and reviewed very positively and stuff like that. And so um, the Nobel Prize announcement mentioned it as his magnum opus in fiction. And I mean, I see it that way too. And then his new book that is coming out after the announcement is 48 pages in the UK version. I think it's a bit longer in the American version. Yeah, 88 is what the what the PDF that I have is though I'm it's it's easy to flip through those pages. <laughs> yeah, 88 uh, 88 pages with breathing room, shall we say. Um, so you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, uh, I think there is a certain aspect you might feel of disappointment or a letdown that it's this little slip of a thing after Septology. On the other hand, not everyone has read Septology. And even for the people who have, you know, some people like short and some people find that easier to kind of get into and slip into. I mean, the main thing that people who haven't read Fossa need to know is that it's very immersive and it's very easy. You know, everyone talks about there are no sentence breaks and it's 700 pages. And I keep hearing from people like, oh, I was scared, but then I read it straight through and totally loved it. And there are sentences. It's just they're divided by commas and ands. Like it's not some sort of incredibly difficult puzzle for the reader he just kind of stages this way of moving you into the book and through the book that um, is different, but he makes it easy because that's what he's trying to do. You know, he's trying to to write for you. So um, even more than most 48-page books, like this one is really uh, absorbing and you you kind of get sucked in right away. Um, and you know, you're spit back out a lot sooner than you are from a 650 page book, but maybe that's not a bad thing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's the, that's the issue certainly that I thought about when translating it. And now I'm thinking about with it being published, like, how do I talk about this tiny book after having most recently been talking about this huge big book? Yeah. I will just say I, I dove in the deep end. I have not yet read A Shining, but I, I my first experience was Septology, and I will just echo what you said, where there was a little bit of an intimidation factor for me, but at the same time, a, a real fascination. And it did not take any time at all to just get pulled in. I, I've seen people describe it as layers. You know, there's layers on layers. And, and I would agree with that, where 
you cover this first layer and then you go on to the next one and then it just starts building up both momentum, your curiosity, your fascination, your attachment to the characters. And it's, it's like a steady chipping away, but it, it happens so effortlessly. And yeah, I absolutely found it fascinating. Yeah. It's not layers like you have to dig through no. with your laborious shovel work. Mm-mm. It just is like, um, you know, layers being, added or given to you of of experience or memory or something like that. I mean, the other important thing to know about FASA is that everywhere in the world, except for England and America and other English-speaking countries, um, he's a playwright. He is a world-famous playwright. He is literally the living person in the world today who's had the most productions of his plays. Like, he's the most produced playwright alive, kind of everywhere except the U.S. Um, 50 languages, like over a thousand productions. So first of all, he's not inaccessible if like everywhere in the world wants to go to his place. And secondly, you know, you can really see that element of it in the dialogue parts of septology. So it's not just one unbroken reflection. They're characters and they interact and they're scenes with dialogue which again, like each line of dialogue is its own paragraph that ends he said or she said. There's just no period at the end. But so what? Like you still are breaking it up. And and I think the dialogue is incredible because every line, I mean, this is his playwriting chops, you know, every line isn't just reporting what someone says. It's like doing something. You You think like, wait, does he really mean that? Is the situation maybe not exactly what I thought? Or there'll be this like funny reversal or this kind of tension building. And, um, you know, that's maybe not the kind of book you're expecting if what you're hearing is the coverage of like 700 pages, no periods and like Mm -hmm. art and God and whatever. Like you might not be expecting a very human drama, which septology is totally full of. Well, and even he describes it as slow prose, which I know, I mean, I completely get it and and it makes sense, but I do feel like if you only heard that for some people, that could be off-putting. And to me, you know, like I said, I, I get it and it is for sure. But at the same time, I think you would do a disservice to yourself if you wrote it off based only on that description. And the other thing is that's not, I mean, there's some problems with that description because he used that to describe septology as opposed to his other writing. Okay. And it's not like his other writing is glib and fast prose, you know? So what he meant by slow prose is that it's long, that Mm -hmm. it gives time to add more and more layers, especially as opposed to playwriting where in his view, you really have to like put it right out there and like the man, the woman, and then the new man comes and now the old man's jealous. Like, boom, it has to be really dramatic because it's drama. And so what he meant by slow prose isn't in a way the sort of slowness and hypnotic um, absorption that all his novels have, but he just meant that he had more time to like add on these layers. Um, so I agree that slow prose is like a little misleading because it's not like he ever writes fast prose. (laughs) Well, this is all, this is perfect because one of the 
the first things I wanted to go over, we're, we're going through it now because I imagine that many of our listeners have not read any of Foss's work yet. Um, I'm sure there are plenty who have, but many who haven't and are starting to encounter his name for the first time because it's in the news right now. And when they go out and look, oh, what has he written? And they find Septology and they find Melancholy 1 and, and Melancholy 2. How do you like, how do you get through that to, to know what it is? And so I was going to, I wanted to talk a little bit about how accessible what I've encountered of his work is. Uh, and this kind of leads into what, what have I been reading as well? I started yesterday uh, morning and evening. Um, his it's another very short one that you translated and published by Dalkey. Oh, I don't know, 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. And yeah, there, there aren't any periods, but it's so easy to, to still get fully pulled in to this. It, it starts out with a, a birth scene. It's a, a couple having, having a child. Um, there's a, a, you know, a midwife or, uh, they're helping, and it's it it's so it's not off putting at all. It's not it's there's no barriers to getting into it. And I actually what there are plenty of authors who leave out periods and you know don't have sentence breaks. And sometimes I can't figure out why they did it. You know, is it just just to play around? Are you just being different? <laughs> For some reason. I felt like periods would have gotten in the way. I don't know if I've ever felt that before, but I thought I'm glad there aren't periods. I'm glad that I, I almost feel like I'm in, in ways that I haven't felt before right there with them having these thoughts, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no, it's like life is flowing around me in a way that it it isn't with the period. So I thought, wow, that, that might be the first time that it hasn't just been an intellectual exercise for me to figure out why it's set up the way it is, but I actually am feeling that power. And that's, uh, again, for listeners, that's morning and evening. It's a, an accessible, if you are looking for a place um, about the birth of a man, and then the last, you know, the last 80% of the book is his last day of life. It's beautiful. Yeah, I sometimes uh, use that book to kind of um, describe how Fossa really just goes for it. You know, chapter one, 25 pages childbirth scene, partly from the point of view of the baby. Chapter two, 80 pages, last day in the life of the old man who was born in chapter one. Like, boom, there it is. Like, really? Are you really just doing that? Um, but um, uh, it's what he sold, you know, morning and evening. And- yeah, morning and evening, <laughs> which is a translation problem because... You, you mentioned that in the book. You, you talk either... Oh, do I? You, at the start, you talk about the various other ways you could have translated that title. Oh, I forgot I put that note in there. But yeah, I, I was going to just say it now that like the word for evening is kind of the word for night. And, you know, evening in English is more kind of the lead up to the end of the day, whereas clearly this book is about you know, the very beginning and the very end. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to call it something like Daybreak Nightfall, which is cool, but also a bit more in your face and doesn't have the kind of everydayness of it. Mm-hmm. And there were also practical reasons like, you know, the Royal Opera House in London was putting on an opera and they were calling it morning and evening. So I was not going to call the book something different or whatever. But um <laughs> Uh, so I, that's that's one like slight disappointment to me 
as a translator, like I don't think the English does as good a job of like marking the two thresholds mm. um, that the original title does. But given the story, I think people get the idea that it's like the morning of life and the evening of life or whatever. So, yeah. you know, it's good enough. And night would have felt like death versus the threshold you're, you're talking about to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I love this kind of chatter. I love hearing the, the, uh, the thought that, you know, that goes into that, that kind of work. Paul, I, I apologize. I think I cut you off. Oh, no. I mean, hopefully this is related to the flow of the conversation, but I had read, you know, where you actually learned Norwegian so you could translate him. Is that true? And if so, I, I'm just curious, like, what is, what is the draw? Because we're talking about accessibility to some people without having read his work. There are various aspects that could be intimidating or even off-putting, you know, to some people. What was it, if it's true that you did that, or even if not, what is it that draws you to his work so strongly? Yeah, so, I mean, the story is that, um, for those of you who don't know, publishers often ask people they more or less trust to do what's called a reader's report. So, in other words, publisher hears about some great new Bulgarian writer, and they don't read Bulgarian, and so they give a copy of the novel to their person who does a book report, basically. And this is a pretty common, on the one hand, like starter job for beginning translators. That's how I, that's sort of the stage I was at. Also, you know, Roger Strauss, the Farrar Strauss-Rue would call up Susan Sontag and say, how's this Italian book that the Italian publisher is telling me about? And so, you know, uh, I was asked to do a reader report for Melancholy, and the I, I did not know Norwegian, nor apparently did the publisher know anyone who knew Norwegian <laughs> that they wanted to ask. So they sent me the German translation of this Norwegian novel to do the reader report. Mm-hmm. So I read it in German and just thought, Wow, total genius. Absolutely has to be brought into English. What a great book. And so my reader's report said, total genius. Absolutely has to be brought into English. And the publisher said, thank you very much. Here's your hundred bucks. And, you know, actually, no, we're not going to do it, Uh, which often happens with reader's reports because they have other plans and they have other projects and whatever. So I said, well, since you're not going to do it, do you mind if I take the project somewhere else? Like, I don't know if I actually had to ask them that, but it just felt like the right thing to do Mm -hmm. rather than like steal it. I mean, they'd already said no, so it wasn't stealing anything. Um, So they're like, sure, go ahead. And so that's how I um, pitched it to Dalkey Archive and got them to accept it. I uh, got in touch with a co-translator, so someone I know who's a native Norwegian speaker, actually the version of Norwegian that Fossa writes in, and is fluent in German and English and five other languages. And in the years since I had been in touch with her, had studied translation with William Weaver at Bard and was interested in doing a translation project. So we co-translated that first book, which, and I mean, I had translated a sample to send to Dalkey just straight from the German. Um, but the way we mostly worked was that she did a first draft. Her name's Greta Fairness. 
she did a first draft from Norwegian into English, and then I worked on the English looking at the Norwegian, and I knew what it meant because I had the English there. And if I was having trouble figuring out like what was going on exactly in lieu of looking in Norwegian English dictionaries or whatever else a translator does, I instead looked at the German. Norwegian is a Germanic language, and so German is a useful um, language to triangulate with in this particular case because um, the the grammar matches quite closely and stuff like that. So that was the process of my learning Norwegian. Um, I didn't go take Norwegian classes or spend a year abroad in Norway or something. I really learned it through this reading and translating process. And I thought at first, you know, I was a little worried, like, is there really going to be anything for me to do in this process other than a little editing? Because, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to call myself the co-translator if I was just polishing up the English a little bit that Greta had come up with almost perfectly. This is something that happens a lot um, where um, a often white, often male English speaker with some level of status, um, not that I had much of any at the time, but, you know, I was still male and, you know, works with someone who gets dismissed as like a linguist providing a crib, but then the poet does the real translation or whatever. Uh, this is now usually called bridge translation and um, is not in much favor for very good reasons, which is that the real translator's work gets dismissed and not credited and not praised. So, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to be in that situation, but as it turned out, I was able to like work with the Norwegian and we went back and forth. I, I remember seven or eight like rounds of full on revision with, you know, dozens or hundreds of changes every page. Like we, we really did Greta and I work together. I, and I feel like it is fair to call that a, a co-translation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's how I learned the Norwegian. It wasn't even to read Fasa. It was like by reading Fasa. <laughs> okay. Um, no, that's uh, yeah. So I had that experience too. I just read the book and I was like, wow, great book. You know? Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, it, it feels like ever since then, he's, and I'm not saying it's because of his work getting translated into English or anything, but he's been a perennial favorite to, to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, that's how I probably first came to to know that he existed was seeing his name on these lists you know 15 right. years ago or so and how has it been to kind of be working and translating somebody who's you, you've translated other nobel winners um but to, to be translating somebody who is active and working on these things that could win it at any moment and you know, I, I, I'm curious how that felt and how it feels now that he has one. I, you know, that kind of uh, side of it as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I read this month um, many reports that said in 2013, which is 10 years ago, 
the the betting sites which have you know raking a little money from suckers who'd like decide to bet <laughs> on the Nobel Prize um, had to like freeze their bets because there had been this leak and this run of betting on FASA. And that was 2013, which I don't remember. Like, I think I didn't know about that or uh, something. For me, it's been in the last five years or so that he's sort of perennially talked about as a front runner. Now, what does that actually mean? Like, nobody really has information, but of course, some people have information. So, like, oh, my God, did someone pillow talk in Sweden with a journalist? And, like, that's the ultimate source of these rumors? Or is it just some person, like, making stuff up? Like, who knows? So Mm -hmm. it was already something I could use as a calling card for him, like perennial front runner for the Nobel Prize. Like that makes people go, oh, okay. You know, he's a real writer. So, um, you know, every year I'd set my alarm and kind of wonder, and then it would be someone else and I'd be like, okay, fine. And like, that's all it really (laughs) meant to me. Um, Other than just as a sign of his status, which whether or not he was a front runner, like he still is the writer he is. And especially with septology and the sort of slow build over the three volumes and the three years. And the third volume, as I, as I mentioned, was finalist for the International Booker Prize, for the National Book Award, for the National Book Critics Circle Award, for the Republic of Consciousness Prize. And um, so you know, there really was this sense that he's a major writer. This year, at first, I was like, oh, he's not going to win. But then, you know, like everyone else, I looked online and got brainwashed into being like, oh, my God, he's going to maybe win. (laughs) And um, this year, of course, the experience was different. And I could pick up enough Swedish of Mats Malm's announcement that when he said the Norwegian writer right before he said his name, I'm like, oh my God. So I, I heard half a second before um, non-Swedish understanders that, uh, that it was him. I heard from someone I know that they were watching with subtitles on, on YouTube and the subtitle said Ian Foster instead of Jan Falsa. So they're like, Ian Foster? (laughs) And then they're like, Ian Foster, famous Norwegian playwright who writes about a painter alone in the towards? And then they're like, okay, (laughs) I guess not Ian Foster. But um, so Thursday was, as you you could imagine, very hectic and lots of people calling me and asking for statements and the Atlantic Monthly said, can you write a piece today? And, you know, all this kind of stuff. And for me, that ended kind of after one day. I think Foss is going to be answering emails for the rest of his life. But, um, like, for me, it was the sort of intense publicity thing for one day. Um, but now the agent is like, can you translate this publicity material into English today? And can you do a really long sample of Fossa's like very difficult second novel that's very been tra- that's never been translated like maybe by tomorrow and it's like no <laughs> um so uh so there was one day and then it stopped but now i think just the sort of slow burn 
increased work. Like they're going to be more fossil books in English and I'm going to be working on them and the publishers are going to want me to work on them fast, even though I have other commitments. So, you know, that part is starting, Mm -hmm. but it's also very gratifying. I have to say like, um, I'm not an unbiased judge, but it does seem to me that in the coverage, there's more acknowledgement of and praise for me as a translator than I remember from many of the other Nobel Prize winners recently who don't write in English. And um, I think part of that is due to the zeitgeist and things like Jennifer Croft's, um, you know, movement to get more recognition for translators and names on the cover and name the translator hashtags and things like that. Not only Jennifer Croft, but she's sort of the figurehead for that and spearheading it. And um, so I don't know how much of it is just the moment we're in where like journalists have learned that they should acknowledge translators and how much of it is, um, you know, actually about me personally um, and how much of it is just that I notice my name more than I notice the like <laughs> Mo Yan translator's name, which appeared <laughs> in all of his coverage 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but it does seem, you know, y- you asked like, what's it like for me? And it's gratifying, you know, more than 20 years ago, I read a book and thought, oh, my God, this writer is incredible. And I've been proven right, you know, and that feels nice. And insofar as I contributed to this happening because a writer's reputation in the English-speaking world just is more important to the success worldwide of a book than any other language. I mean, it's not good, but that's how it is. You know, so I I probably did do my little part to help him on the world stage. And that's great. It's very gratifying. Oh, well, thanks for sharing that. I, it, if you, I don't know how much more time you have. I know I told you it would probably be about an hour, but I would love before that to at least introduce to listeners a shining, which, uh, you know, might be a little bit tricky to get depending on availability but is you know i would recommend it they're and printing fast so it'll <laughs> be easy to get soon and the the edition you know that transit books has put out is I, i've seen them cover it on instagram it's it's got this beautiful cover mm-hmm. that has you know uh, you know the kind of shiny foil effect on it. it it looks lovely i can't wait to have a have a copy in my hand me too um, <laughs> you should get one before me. I feel, I feel bad about that. Um, but you you translated this, um, and it, it it was it's a it's a fairly fresh fresh translation of a fresh work. This isn't like his you know two thousand two book A Shining. This is his twenty twenty three book A Shining. If I if I'm reading what I can read correctly, isn't that right? Yeah. That so it came out new? in January in Norwegian. Um, and he wrote it after Septology. So this is the, um, you know, he's now written more things that are not yet published, but this was the first fiction he wrote after Septology. Yeah. So the setup is we find out right in the beginning 
that the main character and narrator of the book, you know, kind of got depressed or bored with his life or loose ends and just started driving. So just got in his car. When he got to a place where he could turn left or right, he turned left and the next time he turned right and the next time he turned left and he just turned off his conscious decision-making and just drove and ended up with his car stuck on a forest road. And so there he is. Now he can't reverse. He's like stuck, you know, on this kind of mound between two ruts or whatever. And there he is. And so that's sort of the opening situation of the book. And of course, it starts to get dark. Of course, it starts to snow. And like, what's he going to do? He hasn't passed any houses recently. Is he going to have to walk all the way back to the main road? But were there really any houses there anyway? And like, will anyone even be able to help him if they don't have some kind of tractor or something? So he's just kind of sitting there. And what he eventually decides to do is there's a little footpath heading into the woods. And so he's like, well, you know, I got to look for some help. I can't just sit here. And so he heads into the woods. And in a way, that's a, the kind of threshold moment of the book. Like reality in the dark forest is a little bit different than our everyday reality in the car. Um, so as soon as he does, um, I mean, this is the kind of playwriting aspect I love. Fossa really tracks the way people are not very consistent or coherent in their thoughts and actions. So he's like, well, you know, every path has to go somewhere. I might as well look on this path. And he goes on this path and immediately gets lost, can't find his way back to the car. And it's like, oh my God, what was I thinking? That is like the worst idea in the world that it's possible to have, to like wander around alone in the dark forest when your car is stuck. What is my problem? And it's like very <laughs> funny, um, but also part of this kind of hypnotic effect of you're like really in his thoughts because you know, that is how it works. You, you make some decision and it's not like, well, you've made it, the decision is over. You're still like, a confused normal person like everyone else in the world living your life. And so the fact that he like goes into the woods and immediately is like, I am so stupid. Like, why did I go into the woods? Like as part of the aspect of the book that I really love, it's not just a sort of fable -y thing as the plot description might sound like it has all these human moments. So um, I won't spoil it, but I will say that he soon starts seeing these shining white apparitions in the forest. Um, and that's why the book is called that. Um, and of course he's like, am I seeing things? What is this? What's happening? But he has these encounters with these presences in the woods. Ooh, you just sold me big time. Well, the thing that I was surprised, I was surprised at, where this book goes and how it gets there. I, I maybe thought, Oh, it's Norwegian. It's going to end dour. It's going to, you know, he's depressed. He is, he's got some, you know, I'll, I'll read here in just a moment, the first little bit and he's feeling empty, but there's so much more to it 
there is that. I don't think that I ever would say, oh, Fossa is just saying, oh, I've read books like where someone's kind of wandering and it, it, it reads like a polemic to try and help people feel better. And yet there's something touching about this one too. I don't know. Um, I, I don't want to get too into it either because uh, most people can't get their hands on it yet, but it doesn't, it, it wasn't what I was expecting it to be. It was something a lot more, and I, I did. I, I loved this book. Um, is now a good time to to read the first little bit? Sure. And give it, um, give a and sense. Of course, normally when I'm interviewed, I do the reading. I uh-huh. don't actually have the book. I suppose I could pull up the you know word file I sent to the publisher or whatever. <laughs> but on the other hand, why don't you read it, Trevor? You're a good reader, and we'll, you we'll know, see what I can do. Yeah, just start at the beginning. You know the thing I uh, that. Kind of throws me off here is this. I feel like I'm in this 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 man's head, and I feel for him, and I'm not going to be able to convey that in my reading. Well, maybe um, the words will. Hopefully, <laughs> uh, all right. I was taking a drive. It was nice. It felt good to be moving. I didn't know where I was going. I was just driving. Boredom had taken hold of me. Usually I was never bored, but now I had fallen prey to it. I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do, so I just did something. I got in my car and drove, and when I got somewhere, I could turn right or left. I turned right, and the next place I could turn right or left. I turned left, and so on. I kept driving like that. Eventually, I'd driven a long way up a forest road where the ruts gradually got so deep that I felt like the car was getting stuck. I just kept driving until the car got totally stuck. I tried to reverse, but I couldn't, so I stopped the car, turned the engine off. I was sitting in the car. Yes, well now I'm here, I thought. Now I'm sitting here and I felt empty, as if the boredom had turned into emptiness. Or maybe into a kind of anxiety because I felt something like fear as I sat there empty, looking straight ahead as if into a void, into nothingness. What am I talking about, I thought. There's the forest in front of me. It's just a forest, I thought. All right, then. This sudden urge to drive off somewhere has brought me to a forest. And there was another way of talking, according to which something, something or another, led, whatever that might mean, to something else. Yes, something else. I peered into the forest in front of me. Forest. Yes, trees right next to one another, pines, Pine trees, and between the trees was brown soil that looked like it was mostly dry. I felt empty. And then this anxiety. What was I scared of? Why was I scared? Was I so scared that I couldn't get out of the car, didn't dare to? Well, this was the end of the forest road I had driven onto and gotten stuck on. I was near where the road ended. And that was probably why I felt this anxiety, because I had gotten my car stuck at the end of a forest road, and here... At the end of the forest road, there was nowhere I could turn around. I'll stop there, even though that's great. Love it. I love hearing it. You know, um, uh, I think that not only did you do the job that you were worried about, but it's the same job I did, you know, (laughs) like getting the words across and they work their magic. Mm-hmm. I will say it's your again. Your translation is such that 
it flows so well. I could have read this whole book from start to finish, and I don't think any of our listeners would have said, why doesn't he stop? It doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop. There is no stopping um, in this book. It's one thing after another, and I love the rhythm. I love the rhythm of his thoughts. I love the rhythm that you instilled with the the language and the way that you, you rendered it into English. It's, it's a book that, again, all of that works to really help me just feel it, it, w- with this person who's at the end of a road and, you know, is stuck. And why is he scared? And, and he doesn't know. And I love that he doesn't, he doesn't know, you know. Yeah, we've all been there, you know. We've all been at the end of the road and feeling stuck. And, um, you know... I don't know if uh, if we explicitly said it or not, but there are periods in this book. Oh, yeah. The, you know, but if all of them were commas, it would have sounded the same, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's why the whole one-sentence septology thing is, you know, maybe not what reviewers need to talk about all the time because right. it, it doesn't really make it... All the stuff you said about it being kind of unstopping and unstoppable and you're just carried along and stuff like that. It works with periods too when Foss is doing it. Like that's the more important thing to emphasize than this kind of um, catch, catchy hook of like, OMG, no sentences. <laughs> right. Well, Trevor, you said something that I thought was really important. You said it didn't feel like a polemic. And I think that that's worth noting just because, you know, um, so often when he's described like Damien, you sent over a link to an article from the Telegraph that was titled The Novelist Who's Closer to God Than Any Other. And I think it's interesting the way that while that is a key focus, you know, spirituality, religion, his faith is a key part of this. That could be off-putting, I think, or at least it could go a certain direction that for certain readers would not be appealing. And I think what Trevor said about it not being a polemic is really important to just note that one of the other things that could be a potential barrier to accessibility for potential readers is this whole idea of him as like, I don't know, some spiritual hermit or, or whatever, you know, I don't know exactly how somebody might take that. But just the way that he is able to instill humanity into all of these themes and make it very personal, vulnerable real. I think that's just really important to notice. So I just wanted to, to add on that part there. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that was my experience to translating it. I mean, I'm a secular person. I don't like being told this or that is the truth. Right. I certainly don't like being told everyone in the world believes in God and even the people who think they don't actually do. Like, I'm, I, that gets my back up and I'm like, don't tell me that. Um, and there is, there like are those sentences in septology that kind of is where Fossa is coming from. And so at first when I ran across it, I was like, uh Oh, am I translating some like Catholic propaganda here? Like what's going on? But in fact, even for me as someone like basically resistant to that, I found it all incredibly moving and beautiful and not insulting or threatening or anything like that. Um, He really does manage to um, 
to really walk the walk of the like humility and non preachiness that even while it is very central to him and how he sees the world, both him, the character in the book, and I think also him, Fossa personally, um, you know, it it really does come across as more saintly than preachy somehow. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reviews, even before this one you quoted, like Closer to God, I mean, some, I, someone's like, oh my God, like that's what they're saying. Like that's some pretty, that's what you're leading with. Like know. he's close to God. And there was um, a prominent review by a New Yorker writer, Mervé Emery last year that said like, the books that made me feel more than any other, the reality of the divine or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that certainly is an element and a very prominent one. But uh, yeah, I agree that um, for people potentially put off by that, at least know that like I am equally potentially put off by it, but I'm not in reality put off by how Fossa does it. Yeah. No, that's perfect. I just thought that was an important point to emphasize because I came yeah. at it from a similar point of view and he, and he completely won me over with it's a sincerity without being modeling or without being, like you said, preachy, which is, I don't know, it's a tricky. And balance. beyond that, I mean, there's a there's a part of the book. So Septology takes place uh, in December. There's It's the lead up to Christmas. There's a sort of plot arc of is his neighbor going to convince the character to come to Christmas dinner with the neighbor's sister and also the um, uh, there's like Christmas dinners being planned and stuff like that. So at one point there's this huge, not huge, there's this, you know, several page retelling or thinking through the nativity story. So the narrator thinks about, you know, Mary and Joseph and they get to the manger and there's a light in the East and all this stuff. And it's so beautiful. And I mean, come on, we know that story like that. You're not, and we think what we think about it. Like we've already had whatever I would, you know, I would have said that we already think whatever we're going to think about it. Like there's, there's nothing new to do with like Jesus, Mary and Joseph in the manger, like that's really been covered, but um, it is beautiful. And I mean, even for me, a secular person. And then uh, if I remember right at the very tail end of telling the story, the speaker, the character, says, but do I really believe that? Like, there's no way you can really believe that. I mean, that's crazy. You can't really believe it. And yet I kind of do believe it. And so that kind of paradoxical, but uh, I don't know, appealing and human engagement with these issues, Mm you know, really works somehow. Like, I don't know how. I would not... I would not have thought that anyone could tell me the nativity story and make me care, but you know, he did it. I, I think what you just said there is a, is a big key to it. It's his, it's, it's him being able to explore someone's engagement um, with these things in a humane and um, very human kind of way. I think of, of, you know, I'm reading the brothers Karamazov in, in uh, Michael Cates's new translation. Um, 
And I know that Dostoevsky was very religious, and part of his point in writing this book was to explore that. But he is also willing to have one of his, you know, well, several of his most enticing arguments come from Ivan, you know, an atheist, because he's exploring this this wrestle or this engagement and and showing the characters. He's not afraid to have that. And, and I'm, I'm not having read Septology. I'm assuming that maybe him being able to step back and say, but do I really believe that probably helps a little bit there to show that it's in someone engaging with it more than someone trying to tell you, you should as well in this very way. And that, that stuff I do love. I love the films of Ingmar Bergman, for example, um, where he's, and, and, and I think particularly of winter light where he's showing, uh, a you know a priest who's in charge of a parish and of people who come to him for answers starting to realize I don't have these anymore for myself let alone how to help someone else and I just I love that wrestle with mm-hmm. what do I know and what does this sh- what my my own ex- my own identity is now being kind of shattered or or questioned and how do I get around that I love I love that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but I mean there's also you know, he's a he the the main character of Septology is a believing Catholic who like goes to church and converts and like mm-hmm. fingers his rosary and recites prayers every day, like in Latin. And so it's not just kind of touching on it from this hmm. um open-ended exploratory position. I mean, he's very committed and there's a lot of it in the book. Um, I mean, not a lot out of 700 pages, I guess, but like a significant amount of it in the book. So, um, you know, it's very surprising to me that that works the way it does and comes across the way it does. Hmm. Um, I'm excited to read it. I mean, I've been excited for some time, but our conversation today has mm-hmm. has just made it feel kind of urgent, even. Yeah. How far are you, Paul? You said you did. You read the whole thing, or you started? I did not yet. I am through the first the first book, or the first two books, or the first third, or okay. <laughs> so. The other name, I guess, is the way that it is titled, at least in the Fitzcarraldo edition. The yeah, yeah. So the uh, I mentioned at the beginning, there are seven parts, and those are just mm-hmm. numbered one to seven. And there are three books, each of which contains either two or three of the parts. So that adds up to seven. Um, And the three books were published separately in Norwegian as well as English. And they each had titles. The the other name, I is another, which is the Rambo quote, Mm -hmm. and then the new name. Um, I think the publisher convinced Fossa to add a subtitle like colon Septology 1 and 2 or Septology 3 to 5. Um, and then now they have uh, been published both in Norwegian and in the U.S. and the U.K. in these one-volume compendium um, things. You sometimes see in the press that it's a thousand pages long or it's twelve hundred and fifty pages long, which it is in Norwegian because Fossa gets say in how the book is designed, and he likes really big print and a lot of white space. But in the very normally designed transit books, it's, I think, like 650 or 670, somewhere around there. So, you know, it's not a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And um, yeah, so for for any listeners like trying to figure out like, wait, what is this book? Like which part? So either start with the other name, which is the first two parts, or just get the one volume thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when the when a new name, which was the third book, was up for all these prizes, we were all wondering, you know, can people even read the third part without reading the first two? Like, um, isn't that weird? And I kind of hoped that people would go back and read the first two parts first, because reading the last third of a book or a series, depending on how you look at it, seems strange. But a lot of people did seem to do that. And nobody seemed to say that I ran across in person or online. No one seemed to say, yeah, why am I reading the end of the book first? That makes no sense. There were people who said, oh, I really love it. And then there were people who said, oh, I really love it. Now I can't wait to read the first two parts and then reread the third. You know, so, Mm -hmm. so... for all of the weird numerology of it, it seems like whatever you do is fine. Yeah. I would argue, you know, if people are looking for entry points, I mean, Damien, you're obviously a way better source for suggestions, but just based on our conversation today, I hope if nothing else, people realize there's a lot of entry points, whether you want to start with the 48 pages, you want to start, you know, jump in the deep end like I did. I mean, I think that if you can get past that mental block and just, give him a try it won't take him long to win you over and you know whichever point you start out i think you'll end up finding a way to get into it yeah it sounds it sounds like any any thoughts on that damien where where if someone came up to you and said i've never read him and you 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 know in general do you have any thoughts on that or do you agree with paul just say hey just get over the idea that it's it's going to be a burden and look well, at I think something we know else. from politics that if you say get over the idea, there's it's going to be a burden. You're telling people to worry that it's a burden. <laughs> I like really just wish people would stop saying that because it isn't a burden. And mm-hmm. there isn't even a mental block. Like people read 600-page books all the time and people read short books all the time. So um, I've translated now, I believe – if you count Subtology as one instead of three, I've translated five novels, as well as I put together for Fitzcarraldo a collection of short fiction called Scenes from a Childhood, which I wouldn't say is a starting point, but some people have read that first and liked that too. So, you know, whatever. Um, I think of the five, perhaps Melancholy is not the best starting point, and yet it was my starting point, worked for me. So mm-hmm. what kind of advice is that? <laughs> um, uh, Septology is the biggest canvas. And sort of before A Shining, we were working our way up. And I used to say things like, the longer, the better for Fossa, because the more room he has to work with, the more layers you get. But, you know, maybe A Shining disproves that. Um, The one title I think we haven't mentioned besides Morning and Evening, the other short novel I translated is called Alice at the Fire. And I think that's a great starting point. It was mine. That's the one that I had read um, prior to A Shining. And except for, I I do think I read some of Scenes from a Childhood too, or Scenes of a Childhood. 
I'll have to go and check on that um, in the interim there. But I, I really enjoyed Alice at the Fire as well. Yeah, I that one exactly. I think it is Scenes From because that was my title and that was mm-hmm. my nod to Bergman, of course, who has a movie called Scenes mm-hmm. From a Marriage. Um, the, um, the title piece in that book was published as a small book by itself of 44 extremely short, like Lydia Davis short, autobiographical things. What he said was it was his attempt to do autobiography, but it didn't work because nothing ended up being like fully true. It ended up all being made literary in the course of writing about it, but, but that's what it is. And so it's kind of this wild, like if Lydia Davis wrote Knausgaard, cause it's his whole life and this autobiographical Norwegian thing in these incredibly tiny little moments. Um, and so the Norwegian title is called Prose, meaning short fiction, from a growing up period, like, um, which obviously does not work that well in English. Mm-hmm. So since I was thinking of um, what to call it in English, I thought, oh, okay, the, the nod to Bergman is going to be subliminally or not so subliminally useful for English language readers. And it actually is a pretty close translation of prose from a growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, So same with A Shining. That has a a title challenge, too. Um, The the Norwegian book is called Kvitlike, which means whiteness. Kvit is the same word as white, um, which is why it's a WH in English. And like is just makes it into a, uh, a noun from being an adjective. So it's called whiteness. These shapes, you know, have this glowing whiteness. But you can't call a book whiteness in English in 2023 without it meaning something different, which it did not mean in the Norwegian. So clearly, uh, we're not going to call this book whiteness. What are we going to call it? And so a shining, of course, nods to Stephen King's Stanley Kubrick spookiness uh, of The Shining, which the original doesn't do, but that works better as an English title. And again, is not worlds away from emphasizing the glowiness that the Norwegian title emphasizes, but calling it a shining kind of locates it in English for people who are running across it in bookstores or book reviews or on the internet or whatever. So, I mean, that's part of the translation um, task there. But anyway, so yeah, start, start anywhere. I would say Alice at the Fire or maybe Morning and Evening if you want a short novel. A Shining is great if your definition of a short novel is chorus <laughs> on the low page count end. And septology is great too. And there is no hurdle. Just, it's not hard. Like, and you'll have more to love. So um, you're, you're in good shape. Yeah, I love it. Well, thanks so much, Damien. I, I don't want to cut anybody off if there's something else someone wants to go and discuss or if if not though i very much have enjoyed uh just just sitting in on this 
I love these conversations and it's been nice to hear your thoughts, your insights. Again, your enthusiasm makes it all, um, all the more, you know, uh, enticing to, to go and read these and to engage with them, uh, ourselves. And, um, I do want to thank, uh, transit books They they helped us kind of get together on, on mm-hmm. this. And I, I wish them well with their new, um, you know, their, their, I'm sure it is a bit of a headache, but their their fortunate headache of having to figure out how to publish or you know print more of these books to get out into everybody's hands, and I look forward to uh, everything that's coming coming soon from from them and from you. And uh, you know, this is this is always the fun part of the episode where we go and think, oh, I've got all these things I want to read now, yep. and then uh, you realize you have to do the laundry and you got to you know <laughs> you got to do other work, and and uh, we can't do all that, but I am just as excited as ever. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot. And let me echo thanks to Transit, but also say thanks to you. I've been reading the Mooks and the Gripes for a long time myself. And um, in the various forms of the, of the forums and the reviews and didn't it used to be a blog, like back in the day, like whatever, you know, I feel like (laughs) it's gone through a bunch of versions. So it's great to, to get to talk to you about this and, um, you know, especially on a, a topic that um, I am enthusiastic about and hope that, um, you know, all the listeners out there will pick up some of the enthusiasm as well. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah. On that note, listeners, uh, let us know. Are you, are you already a fan of Yoon Fossa. <laughs> Whether or not you're scared to sit, pronounce his name. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say it uh, haltingly. Um, is it is it exciting to have an, uh, an author in front of you if you haven't read his work yet? And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts as you get into it and um, and get a, a Shining in your hands or Septology or any of the other ones. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll start getting some of his plays produced here as well. So we can, yeah. we can see some of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks, Damien. This has been wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at Bibliopaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time. <laughs>